0: Welcome to the one-in-one podcast, where a below-average podcaster chats with an above-average athlete. I'm your host, Bridget B. This is the very first episode, and I really have to pat myself on the back. I hit a home run with our first guest. I'll be chatting with Shauna Zolman-Mahaley, a former guard at the University of Tennessee under legendary head coach Pat Summit. She also played in the WNBA for the San Antonio Silver Stars and the Tulsa Shock. Shauna, thanks for coming on. How are you?
1: My pleasure. Doing well. Thank you for having me. And I love your, uh, your intro, by the way. Thank you. Below, <laughs> below average podcaster. Yeah.
0: Hopefully after a few of these, I'll be average, and then we'll work our way up until yeah. above average. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So I'd like to start off on giving our listeners some information on just how successful you were as a basketball player. In 2002, you won Indiana State Miss Basketball, and Gatorade Player of the Year. You also held the girls' state record for most points scored, 3,085 to be exact, until the recent number one pick in the WNBA, Jackie Young, broke it in 2016. Which, by the way, you left a really nice uh, video message for her.
1: <laughs> she got me. She <laughs> got me. Yeah, I, was, um, I was informed that she would probably be getting it, uh, I would say maybe a couple games, like five games, before she, she broke the record. And I wanted to educate myself a little bit on the type of person that she was because a scoring record was never something I set out for. I mean, that, that I honestly could have cared less about the scoring title. It was, um, it was just something that happened, and I was blessed to to have accomplished that. And it was, I, I would have, I've said it from day one, like I would have had, as a lot of athletes do, but I, I rather would have had a state championship or a ring as opposed to something like that, but um, wanting to get to know Jackie a little bit and just the the, the consistency that everybody talked about her with, and I, and I know this is still probably true today, but just an, uh, an upstanding young woman who was uh, filled with integrity. She was admired by her peers, by uh, her teachers, and just did it the right way. Like, you, you, I don't, not that it was mine to hold on to for life, But when your 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 record gets broken by somebody that does it the right way, that would rather you know have assists than points, that wants to set other people up, she just she never sought to break the record herself either. It just happened. So um, that was honored. Like I was honored to have the the record broken. If it was by somebody, it would I would love to have had it done by somebody like Jackie, who clearly is still on the up and up in her career, getting selected. Number one in the draft, and wish her nothing but the best. But yeah, high school were uh, that was a good run. Those those were the good old days when it was still for the pure love of the game that you're able to play.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Jackie Young does seem like a great kid. I followed her during her Notre Dame years. It would have been fun to see her have one more, but she obviously made the best decision for her, and she
1: was number yeah, one. Yeah, no pick. kidding. No <laughs> kidding. I can't. You can't. Uh, I can't blame somebody for. Yeah. Going ahead and taking the number one spot. <laughs> no.
0: So anyway, um, when you got to college, you were then a member of three Final Four teams. You won two SEC Tournament Championships and two SEC Regular Championships as a, as a Lady Vol. You were then drafted number 16 overall in 2006 by the San Antonio Silver Stars, which I believe now are the Los Angeles Aces, right?
1: The Las Vegas.
0: Las Vegas, exist. yes. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah,
1: neither one of those teams actually I played for exist
0: anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my next note is that you got traded to the Tulsa Shock in yeah, 2010. Yeah. That's the Dallas Wings, right? That's
1: the Dallas Wings now, yeah.
0: <laughs> and then you retired from basketball in 2012. I did, I'd like yeah. to start where it all began, as, as we were just speaking about, growing up in Indiana and um, playing, for those who don't know, Indiana basketball is king and not just at the college level, not just because of Bobby Knight and the success of the Hoosiers, but high school basketball is huge there, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's it's I always equate it to like football in Texas, you know, or Florida or like it's just kind of the uh, the way of living, like what you do as you grow up, you play basketball and that's that's just kind of it may be because there's not a lot else to do. You know, like it's pretty much just. I always say there's three things to do growing up in Indiana: there's farming, there's race cars, and there's basketball. So it's it's pretty much like that. It's just what you're going to choose as a kid. Um, but it is like there uh, for us in high school. And I had a, a rare experience as a female playing ball, um, but it would be the same as for any guy's program where we had a sold out game. It was standing room only halfway through the JV game, um, wow. and we're talking like 3500 plus in attendance. Uh, especially at, this, at a small town where I grew up. and so it was a a really um, just such a blessing, I guess of a of a high school career and the experience that I experienced and and even even Coach Summit when she came and she was uh, went on recruiting visits and she saw what my high school experience was like, and she said she's never seen anything like that. Um, so just a kind of a rarity to have Indiana basketball. Um, it really is keen because there really is nothing else to do, but it's it's just kind of bred. It's just bred through you um, as, as a kid growing up. Have you seen the show Friday Night Lights? Um, I haven't seen it, um, but I know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, so it's about high school football in Texas, and yes, I always yes, thought yes. if I switch careers and become a TV writer, I'd take that premise like a teen drama, but instead of football in Texas, I'd do basketball in Indiana. I think it'd oh, be a, yeah. a straight-to-Netflix yeah, show. <laughs> Straight
1: to Netflix. Yeah. Okay, Cable's cable not, time. it's a little... <laughs> <laughs> for sure, but it's like, it would be modern day Hoosiers. Like, Hoosiers for me growing up, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but Hoosiers Absolutely. for me growing up was like the quintessential thriller of a movie that I watched literally before every single basketball game. And, like, that was what pumped me up. this, what gave me motivation. And that was that was really kind of like, you you play basketball against the barn on the hay mow. Like, that's just what you do. Like, that's literally what it was like.
0: Before every basketball game? Didn't you
1: get bored watching it? No, I would fast forward it to the most motivational part, and I literally would watch it as my pregame. (laughs) It was between that and Rudy. Yeah,
0: okay. Yeah, Rudy's pretty good, too, and that's another Indiana story, Notre Dame. Uh, Yep. Now the theme song from Hoosiers is going to be in my head for the rest of this recording.
1: (laughs) You should just play in the background.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So... Your head coach in high school was your father, Kem Zolman. Can you
1: talk about that experience? Yeah, that was it was quite an adjustment. Um, my dad and I have always had a wonderful relationship, and uh, he was always a boys' coach growing up. Like we literally moved different places just so he could try to pursue a head coaching position um, for guys. And the girls' job opened up when I was going to be a freshman, and he actually turned it down like, oh, right. I don't want to coach girls. I just I just know this is what I've been wanting to do and I was, I was like, dad, like you could you could coach me. And I my dad and I have a close relationship, but I also trust him. And I trusted him because he was as a father figure, you can go one of two ways. You can either be harder on your kid and discipline or you can be the one that wants to live your life through your kid, right? And then just kind of give everything to him. But Absolutely. my dad was was 100% the former. And, um, I knew I could trust him cause he wouldn't just give me stuff. He, he, he made me work even when he made it, he made me work for everything and he was extremely disciplined and he was extremely hardworking, um, which completely, you know, prepared me for coach summit who was a whole other level of hard okay. work and discipline. But, um, my dad, he made things fair for everybody else too. So it was a good experience for all of my team. Cause like, if I generated media publicity, it wasn't just about me. He made sure that every single other person got a chance to speak to the media or got to experience um, the limelight, the the newspapers, the uh, news coverage on camera, you know, all that type of stuff. And so it was it was definitely a good experience, but it was a very hard transition. And it was a tough transition, I say, because it was trying to figure out where does basketball stop and where does home life start? So where does you know, player coach and versus father daughter. And my mom was very in, um, instrumental in that. So being able to say, when we come home, like we're not talking about basketball, we're not having anything to do with what's going on over there at the gym, even though that's really all that we talked about. And so um, it was a tough transition at first, but after the first year or so, um, we really, we really thrived in it and kind of played off and joked around with it and um it was. I wouldn't have traded that for the world. Like that was. It was really special to have my dad right there alongside of me with everything.
0: That seems like a great experience. Is he still coaching today?
1: He doesn't. He he retired a couple of years ago. Um, but he, he had been the tenure for I want to say eighteen plus years. Then so he was with the guys' program for like eighteen plus years, and he was with the girls after that for about the same amount of time. Um, wow. so. Yeah, after after he did, he's like, I would never go back and coach guys. Once he started experiencing coaching girls, um, but yeah, that was that was definitely a sweet sweet period of my life. That's great.
0: So you were a sought after recruit. Obviously, you scored three thousand points. <laughs> but I read an article where you were quoted. I always wanted to be the best and play at the best. So that was either Tennessee or Connecticut, and I hated Connecticut. So obviously, you ended up at Tennessee. <laughs>
1: I did. You can't love one or the other. It's it's either or. Um, (laughs) I I did enjoy, I mean, I knew as a kid, as a kid growing up, that was still the hot rivalry, you know, where they no longer obviously play, but the hot rivalry. And that was primarily one of the main games that would only be televised, especially on CBS. I mean, on cable. So that was really, I mean, if if you're up and coming as an athlete, like those are the two that you look for. And I knew that I wanted to play for Pat. Like it, it was just, um, I don't know, it was just deep inside of me. It was something I've always strove for, like, even before I really knew her, knew anything a lot, really a lot about her. Um, but that was in grade, probably from sixth grade. I remember getting my my first recruiting le- le- um, letter in eighth grade. And um, from there, like, I, it became a little bit more difficult um, through my high school years because Purdue just won the national championship with Stephanie White. Uh, And then the year I was coming out, yeah, I was um, Notre Dame with Ruth Riley. They won the national championship. So I had a lot of pressure at home to stay local because those were both. Notre Dame was an hour from my home. uh, Purdue was in state a couple more hours away. But so there's a lot of pressure at home, like stay close. But I knew that in order for me to be the best, to have the best brought out of me, and that would have been a hard process, I only trusted Pat with it. And I don't know why, I don't know as a kid, like why that even crossed my mind. I was extremely obnoxiously driven as a kid. I was one of those. It's like, I knew from the womb what I wanted. Um, I was, nothing was going to get in my way from, and which later on in life has caused some problems. Don't get me wrong. But (laughs) as a kid, like on game days, I wouldn't talk to anybody. Like I would just be so focused, getting ready for these games to play. And later to find out that's exactly how coach, like our, our, personality profiles were literally a match and it made sense. Like it made sense why I wanted to go play for somebody who I got, like I understood her. She understood me, which made it twice as difficult when we were there together, but I understood her process and her, um, what she demanded. I was willing to give that. And so I just, I knew I wanted to go.
0: So the same personalities. they say that the people with the same personalities usually butt heads.
1: Was we been ahead for four years plus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Yeah.
0: So I gotta ask you, after that quote you get you gave, did UConn recruit you?
1: Yep. The awesome. um the first day that you're allowed to be recruited. Um by recruited I mean get specific letters. Like they can send you letters and, and uh media guides along the way. Um but the first time that they're able to communicate with you and see different things, I was excited. And I got home one day after school, and I was expecting to look in the mailbox to find all these letters. And I opened the mailbox coming over from school, like, there's nothing inside. And I'm like, wait a minute. But then we looked on the front porch, and I had 83 FedExes um, from every college, basically Division I in the, in the main uh, main level of division one basketball on my front oh porch. My and so I was like, I don't want to go through all of this. Like the recruiting process when you're highly sought after is grueling and everybody's telling you everything you want to hear and they're calling you at all hours and they're wanting everything from you. And you're a kid, you know, like you're talking about, do I want to go to prom or not? But this <laughs> recruiting process can be grueling. So I I knew from the get go, I wanted to tell everybody no, because I didn't want to have the pressure and I didn't want to have the people constantly calling my, my family's phone, first of all. Um, don't get me wrong. I felt good as a kid, like wanting to be wanted like that. But um, yeah, Yukon was part of it. Notre Dame was part of it. North Carolina, Duke. I mean, all the, the main schools were part of it. And I told everybody except Tennessee, Notre Dame, Yukon, or excuse me, North Carolina and Duke from the get-go. Um, I told them no.
0: Did you take visits to all four of those
1: schools? I did. Um, there was an AAU tournament in the summer called the Deep South Classic. So I that was held at North Carolina and at Duke, um, North Carolina State. So I would visit there through that AAU tournament. Um, the only official visit that I took was to Tennessee. I took a lot of unofficials. So Notre Dame, I would go to a lot of football games, which I loved. Um but to truly, truly know and go through the process, it really was only Tennessee, because I didn't want to lie either and drag, drag people through the mud and the dirt and waste their time and money. Um, so once I stepped foot on campus with Tennessee and, and watched a football game in Neyland Stadium with 110,000 people screaming at the top of their lungs, I was like, this is it. I already I already know what I want to do. So uh, I verbaled early. Um, I think it was my junior year that I verbaled to Tennessee. So everything else pretty much stopped after that. Wow.
0: That's amazing when you think how many kids have a dream and you, you got yours, you got to Tennessee.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's rare. And a, a lesson that I preached to a lot of kids, that was something that my dad had always, and my mom, they always instilled in me along with hard work at a young age is setting goals for yourself, both short and long-term and, um, being able to actually achieve something that you set out for from a young, young, young age. I mean, it's, it's a thrill. And um, on the good side of it, it's like, wow, like I I actually, some I didn't, um, but when you can actually accomplish that, it gives you such a a feeling of relief and of accomplishment. But on the flip side of it, then it's like, well, now what? Right? So like after Tennessee, after the WNBA, which huge blessings, you know, being a part of that 1%, literally 1% of of athletes that make it to the professional level um, and then it's done and then it's like I don't know what to shoot for. I don't know what goals to set for myself anymore because everything that I've 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 sought out for, some are told no, but but I've achieved. So now what? You know? And so that's the, that was a very difficult transition for me after that.
0: Yeah, that that must have been difficult. And we will we will definitely get into that. I do want to talk a little bit more about the recruiting process though. <laughs> so in your podcast, the sum of it all, which we will discuss that too later. Uh, you, as well as other former Lady Val, uh, Sydney Spencer, discuss Pat Summit going to high school with you for a day. Do yeah. other coaches do that?
1: I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if they do that or not. Um, well, that seems different. And I messed up by not telling my teachers that she was coming, so they're all so super surprised, and some of them had no idea who she was, so they treat her like just some super guest. <laughs> and so it was quite an eye opener. Yeah, when you know Pat Summit is coming into this rural little country school, and the teachers are like, uh, excuse me, ma'am, do you have a guest pass? <laughs> I'm like, go on. <laughs> no me. But yeah, she did. She and Mickey DeMoss both came um, on their home visit. Wow.
0: Do you remember yeah. if you had any tests that day? I did not have tests. That's good. I'd be so nervous, I think. No, No, what if you're, she's looking over your shoulder and she knows the answer, but you're, you're not sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was shaken.
1: It was, uh, you're getting the eyes, like everybody's walking through the halls, no staring at you like, Oh my gosh, this past summit. Like, Oh my goodness. I can't believe she's here. Um, but there's still, uh, yeah, it it was just amazing. I, I can't describe it. Like she, she came to all of our classes, um, She came and went to a couple classrooms with me, ate lunch in a different department. And then she went to our workout afterwards. She watched us work out. And then she came to my house for dinner. She and Mickey both did. They did a little presentation for us. um, And then they they ate dinner with my family and and they flew out that night. Um, But I I mentioned the story in that episode two of my podcast. But that was the most critical time for my mom. Um, because like we're country bumpkins. Like we, (laughs) I'm from the like legit country and my parents both grew up on farms and they are just like, they work, like they are workers. And so here's this lady coming in she's the who's who of anybody in sport. And my mom's making this amazing country dinner. That's my favorite. And, uh, then Pat and Mickey get in a fight with my mom after literally like they're arguing back and forth about who's going to be doing the dishes. And the humility that she exuded in that, like, argument to my mom, I think that's when my mom was sold. And, like, this is someone that's going to be taking care of her baby for four years. And if she's going to relinquish control, you know, and and willingly allow somebody else to come into her life and become a second mom, so to speak, that spoke volumes to my mom, just that they would have the humility. Like, here's, again, Coach Summers coming into your home to wash your own dishes. Like, and by hand. We didn't have a dishwasher. So it was yeah. like. Um, it just exuded a lot of humility and it meant a lot to her.
0: Yeah. Not that I was recruited for anything, but something like that would definitely mean a lot to my mom too. And we were raised where whoever cooked the other person does the dishes. Yep. Yeah. (laughs)
1: That was was
0: my husband (laughs) and I roll. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. So you get to Knoxville in the summer of 2003 for your freshman year. How difficult is that adjustment period? Because you go from being a dominant player in high school and now you're on a team full of all Americans.
1: Oh, yeah, it was that was the hardest transition for me was high school to college. Um, I I went in actually a a semester early in the summertime to get my feet wet, um, to get some workouts under my belt and um, to give you like a little glimpse into how difficult or maybe the transformation that happened just within a couple of months in the summer. My parents dropped me off. Uh, we'll say it's June. They come back home and they come back down to visit like in August before school actually starts. And I woke up to my dad and he didn't even recognize me. Wow. So it was not just like that, like the way that my body was forming the, um, the work Like in that I didn't have time to eat, like time management as a college athlete is probably one of the first and most difficult lessons to learn because you have to juggle but essentially two full-time jobs because you have the workouts, you have the rehab, you have the training, you have the train tables, you have the school, you have to find time to eat and then shower and then try to sleep. And when you're coming in at the very beginning, and this isn't even real school, this is just summer school. I literally forgot to eat probably for about a week straight on and off because I didn't have time. I didn't know when I was going to like have time to literally walk across campus to go back to my dorm, to grab a sandwich, to walk back to school. Like, So there was a lot of transformation happening. And my dad was looking around. I was like, dad, I'm right here. And he's like, oh my gosh, I didn't even recognize you. So the transition Initially, was extremely difficult, just time management wise. Um, but then, once everybody got there, and you really start hard into the the actual conditioning, the workouts, the speed of the game for me was what really changed. The speed of everything was difficult to to transition into. And as a freshman, Pat was a ma- she was absolute master at breaking you down to completely nothing <laughs> to build you back mm-hmm. up in her system. So it's everything that she once knew, taught, was learned. I mean, aside from my shot form, um, I mean, everything literally was broken down to be built back up. So that freshman year for most players, there's a couple exceptions, but for most players, that's just a very difficult year because you're drinking from the fire hydrant and the the information, trying to learn the plays, trying to learn the system, trying to understand why are you constantly yelling at me? Why are these demands so high? Why are you such a perfectionist? still trying to play the game that you love freely. Like it's almost impossible. So that's a very difficult um, year, not to mention the fact that you still have to go to class and get, you know, a GPA of over 2.5, where you have to go with even more study hall classes and you're screwed because you have no time. So it's, it's, there's just a lot there. And um, luckily I made it through clearly, but um, learned a lot, definitely learned a lot that first year. And that, that truly was a, a far greater transition than, um, even college to pro by far.
0: Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, your freshman year, you, you obviously made it through and you made it to the final four that year.
1: We did. Yep. Final four of the first three consecutive years I was there, which is, um, huge honor. I mean, you're entitled when you're there. You don't truly understand what that means. Cause that's just expected. Like you celebrate, but you don't celebrate because it's like, okay, great, we're going to the final four. Now what? Because your expectation is championship. Um, but still, I remember my freshman year, we are in the Georgia Dome, and you're playing, you know, you're playing in front of thirty thousand people plus. Um, and I'm just this kid wearing high socks from Indiana who, would, who went in to do a layup, probably ricocheted so hard off the backboard. My first game, I went to half court, um, but. Uh, it was just uh, yeah, it was a great experience. It was a wonderful experience and honor to have the experience of going to three final fours, two national championship games. Because um, that's that's a rarity unless you're playing, you know, at UConn's or you're playing at uh, Tennessee, you know, under coach Summit.
0: That's that's for sure. Although it's changing a little bit now. Mm-hmm. Tennessee hasn't been there for a while. UConn's been knocked out of the
1: semifinal the past yeah. three years. Yeah, you, must, a... you
0: must really like that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sad when that happens. <laughs> I definitely won't say that I am upset when that actually happens. Um, but it is good to see other teams kind of get in there too. Yeah, so um, 2003, as you
0: said, was in Atlanta. 2004 was in New Orleans. 2005 was in Indianapolis. What's that atmosphere like at the Final Four?
1: Oh, it's just, I know it's you talked about
0: um, all the people at the stadium, but aside from the game itself, I know there's a lot going on that weekend.
1: Oh yeah, it's a madhouse. I mean, it's 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 a circus. I mean, you're trying to stay focused when you're getting pulled every which way from people, from family members wanting tickets, from um, you know the media wanting to get different clips for ESPN and uh, interviews. Aside from that, but then you have practice, and everything is just. Um, it's just at a magnified level and as it should be, and and grateful for that because the women's game hasn't always had that experience. And so being able to, uh, experience that not only on television, but, but in person, um, that was, it was such a great experience and was so much fun. And, And I remember very vivid, very clear details of all of them because the New Orleans, That was the year we overachieved, if it's possible, for Tennessee, where we weren't expected to to even make it to the Final Four um, because of our people. But our team was so close. We played so well together. It was by far my favorite team I ever played on because every single role player, every single player knew their role. We had great leadership. Um, We knew what we were supposed to do. And every game that we won in the tournament was like down to the wire last second something happened. So it's kind of like one of those crazy seasons where you knew it was just your destiny to keep going um, and ended up losing in in the, the finals. But then the following year in Indianapolis, that was super special because that was home. And being able to play in Indiana um, with so many friends and family able to experience. And that was at the old RCA Dome before they tore it down. So we had, you know, hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of fans that were there as well to experience Peyton Manning was our speaker at the final four banquet. Um, I got to play in front of my, my, my family, my aunt and uncle in particular. I remember um, just seeing so many family members come down that were supportive of me. And like, that was, that was truly special. Uh, And there's another friend and teammate of mine who was from Indianapolis. So we really, we both got to really cherish that year together at that Final Four, but um, all of them are super memorable. Like, I, I don't forget those. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Do you think a bunch of people from Syracuse, Indiana made the trip to Indiana? Oh, yeah. Bus? I
1: think that they rented like three or four Greyhound buses and made a caravan to go down. Like, oh, it, wow. it was crazy.
0: Michigan yeah, State like,
1: really ruined it for you. Uh, they sure did, man. And that was, that was not supposed to happen. We were up 16 that game. I still remember that, too. There's no way we should have lost. But um, yeah, it was, again, Great experience. I can't. I can't get upset about any of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, in two thousand five, that year in Indianapolis, I I think Tennessee had a lot of injuries that year as well.
1: I don't remember that part.
0: I think that was the year that Candace Parker technically was a freshman, but she redshirted. She was.
1: Yep, yeah, she was redshirt. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because I had to play the point. You're right. Yeah, we had a lot of our. We had. We had a lot of issues with our point guard position, which was frustrating for me because I had to be it. And then um, we had a lot of knee issues. I think that's the year my my bud, Sid, went down with a knee injury. Um, So yeah, Yeah. but every year, every year you kind of have injuries. So it's not, that's not necessarily ordinary.
0: Yeah. Even in uh, 2006, your senior year, I think you guys had some injuries too, and you had to take over the point again. Yeah. Um, back to Spencer's injury. So she, like you said, she tore ACL. I believe that was mid season, right? Yes, it was. So you're, you were number five, but you changed your number to one, which is the number she was. Yep. Did she know you were doing that or was that a surprise? No, I
1: surprised her with it. I, um, uh, you have to kind of go through the loops and the hoops because it's a media relations. So I remember sitting down in a media relations individual and told her what I was going to be doing. And I made sure I told them I didn't ask them, I didn't want to give them an option. And I, and I even sat coach summit down. I was like, coach, this is what I'm going to be doing. I just wanted to let you know. I'm not really asking. I'm just letting you know. Cause it was an, it was important for me. Cause that was my best, butt and um, to see her hurting and to see her so frustrated that she couldn't finish the season, I wanted to do my part and how I communicated to them was just like, I want her to know that she's out here with us even if she physically can't be. And so I remember the first game that she set out, we have this elaborate introduction at Tennessee. And so we have this this massive light machine, and it has a whole bunch of steam that's going. There's live music playing, and the fans are all up, and it's crazy awesome. So when you're getting introduced as a starting five, you each have your own individual song that you're coming out to with all of these, and there's fireworks going off the top of the um, the backboard, and so they start mentioning my name, and they normally say, and Shauna Zulman wearing number five, blah, 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 blah. Well, this time I said number five. No way, it's not number one. So I come out, and I lift my shooting shirt, and I'm wearing number one, and Sid just, like, burst into tears. <laughs> she yeah. it just It really meant the world to her, and I was glad. I mean, that's the—that's what I was hoping for. I just wanted to know that, that she was special and that she was a part of our team, even though that she's she's injured. And I know a lot Absolutely. of other players have done that since then, too, but – um, it was just it was something I wanted to do in my own heart.
0: Yeah. Wow. I think I'm going to burst into tears. That's such a sweet story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you played at Thompson Bowling Arena. Um, and I believe when you got there, they already had six national championships. So and what was it like playing an arena with just so much history?
1: Um, you didn't want to mess it up. <laughs> you, you, you felt the added... I wouldn't say pressure because you were in full expectation of that coming in, but you felt the weight of it. And when, when you were not doing well, when your team was not upholding the standards that Lady Ball history has set before you, they brought in past players on the regular to make sure that you remembered. Um, she, Coach Summit, would, would make sure that you knew, that, like, this, this program is not dependent upon you. But you are a part of it. So, like, almost that perspective change is like it's, it's not dependent on you. Like, you you can come or you can go. We're still going to be here. And we're still going to build it. But you're here. We chose you to be here, and we want you to be a part of it to make it better and to keep it going. And so it was like that perspective change that, honestly, while we're playing, you never wanted to see these other players come in and gave you the four one one and tell you how crappy you were doing, telling how the good old days used to be, and how much more difficult Coach Summit was on them than she was on you. But, but there's reality to that. And now being out of it and being one of those players, you look back and you're like, man, there's no way Coach Summit would have allowed that. There's no way, you know, that our team would have been able to do. Like, there's that kind of talk. So it was definitely a weight that you felt and that you wanted. Like, you wanted to be responsible for that and be a part of the legacy that continued on.
0: Did Thompson bowling sell out every game?
1: Not every game, but it was pretty close. I mean, we always led the nation in attendance. I think we averaged 14,000 a game um, at that time of pre renovation where they put some suites, um, it held 25,000 people. And yes. now it's down to about 20, 21,000 that it holds, but by far the largest in any um, women's basketball facility so, a lot of other places that we went to play um just when Tennessee came to town, they would have to play in a larger arena because it their just no, their normal one wouldn't hold us, so we were used to that they weren't, and it, it was it was definitely an advantage that we had where you know playing a twenty five thousand capacity arena for a lot of schools, like especially if they're a little bit smaller, not used to that, that can be overwhelming, especially at that time when it was like all nasty orange Tennessee seats. The band is obnoxiously playing Rocky Top after every dead ball. Like, there's just a lot of things that we had to our advantage. That was very, like, strategized, but it was it was fun, too. It was fun to know and see. Uh, I mean, so many, so many teams would come in, and, like, even when you're out on the floor, if there's dead ball, they would constantly say, does your band have to play Rocky Top one more time? Like, are you serious? So it was definitely an advantage to play there.
0: Speaking of Rocky Top, I still remember. I think it was Tennessee versus Florida for the men's game. Pat Summit came out
1: and uh, sang and danced to Rocky mm-hmm. Top at halftime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She and Bruce Pearl had a good relationship while he was there, um, and they made it fun. I think, and he did the same. You know, full body paint for some of our games, and just to get the crowd into it and engaged. So uh, she sang it. It sounded awful, but it was a beautiful thing to to witness <laughs> for sure. <laughs>
0: Where was your favorite place to play over the four years? And I'm going to take Thompson Bowling, and also I'm going to take Indianapolis out of it too.
1: Yeah, did you I, have another place? I loved playing at Vanderbilt. Um, Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, had a really unique arena that was. I hate very, that court. It it it's weird, and I don't like the seating of like how they put the benches at the end. But as yeah, a that's shooter, weird. um, as a scorer, it was beautiful because. <laughs> The, the thing that people don't understand sometimes when you play in larger arenas, the depth perception behind the backboard is difficult to shoot in. So when you see, and even in men's games, especially for the Final Four, for national championships, they have these massive football arenas that they just put the basketball floor in the middle of. Like, that's a horrible place to shoot in because the depth perception is so hard. Like, there's no backdrop. Yeah, I've heard that so, too. So when you're playing at Vanderbilt, it's a squared, like a rectangled arena. And the backing behind the backboard it's just kind of like you're in a small gym in high school, and so the um, I I always had a good game there. I, think, I don't know if it was the team as well; it was a rival game. But I just I really enjoyed playing on that court.
0: Were you ever scared if you were going for a loose ball that you were going to just fall off the court?
1: <laughs> it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's a little bit wider than probably <laughs> what you think on the on TV. But they gave you some some room for sure. But it's yeah, it is a different one. It's a, definitely a different. Uh, construction of a basketball floor in arena yeah
0: what about your least favorite place to play
1: oh arkansas no question uh, there's so many stories behind this but uh freshman year i got this power rub by our team masseuse before the game but i never got power up like we were totally spoiled we had a team masseuse that traveled with us wherever we went and um, she would give players these quote-unquote power rubs that were literally like a 15-minute little massage to get your muscles warmed up and going. And I never did it until Arkansas. And I had the most epically awful game. I lost my starting position. I I just got reamed up one side and down the other and didn't hear the end of it for the next week. Oh, and yeah. our team of looked at me like sheepishly. She was like more power rubs for you and then every year after that though it was just a struggle playing there and we had to do it every year because they're sec so you're constantly there home home one away one but um first I don't know why there's no specific reason it just hated playing at Arkansas
0: do you really think the power rub affected your play that's interesting no it was just an excuse
1: <laughs> it was just an excuse I made <laughs> I'm
0: actually surprised you didn't say Duke as your least favorite
1: because no, love, of the 2006 uh, game. Yeah, it was an awful game for myself, too. Um, but I, like I just thrive in adversity. Uh, it, it pumps me up. It, it pisses me off. And then I just I get fiery. And when I get fiery, that's when I play my best. I used to have people um, literally try to piss me off before the game so that I would just automatically enter the game mad. <laughs> and they would play a lot better. But places like Duke, places like Yukon when the the fans are just awful and they're loud, they're obnoxious, they're rude. Um, I love that. Like I love I love the um yeah, the adversity when everybody else is against you and it's you, it's literally you feel like it's just you against the world. I just I thrive in that situation. So um It may not appear that way always in my play because clearly that game was horrible. But um, I almost I almost enjoy that just as much as a home court advantage.
0: So so you'd say you like when you shoot the ball at an away game and it goes in and you like the silence rather than than, uh, shooting it at Thompson Bowling and everyone cheering.
1: Yeah, I love it. I (laughs) just love it. Unless it doesn't go in, and, and then you're like, "Oh no!" <laughs> but, yeah, it was it was fun. That's awesome. Um, but going
0: back to the Duke game, I I remember that game, and that was just a great game for women's basketball because the Cameron crazies that you see in the Duke men's games, they were at that game, and they they don't show up for every game for the women.
1: Right. Yep they were they were there in uh, full bore from the get go, like before, right when we got off the bus and went onto the court. Before the lock, like you had to walk through the court to get to the locker room, and they were already there yelling. Um, so they had their Walmart bags, right? They had their Walmart bags. <laughs> sure did. Yeah, they definitely, they definitely pissed Pat Summit off at that game. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> I think she threatened to end the series, right? I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know about that one, but yeah, uh, I
0: don't think she she didn't ultimately, but she she was defending her player about yeah. the Walmart yeah. situation.
1: Yeah, and I could see why she would do that, but um, I don't know. Kind of make your own bed with that. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and just for the listeners that don't know, a player on Tennessee had previously gotten in trouble at a Walmart, so the Duke students just brought a bunch of uh, Walmart plastic bags and were shaking them during the game.
1: Yep, yep. It it was hard not to
0: laugh,
1: actually. She got mad at us for not defending her. We're like, what are we going to do? (laughs) <laughs> there's thousands of fans yelling at us like what are you going to do it's funny that would be hard not to laugh at <laughs> yeah exactly
0: <laughs> so could you talk a little bit more about playing for pat summit um how she was as a coach but also how she was as a person off the court
1: yeah um I mean, coach she was she's just so special she's so unique and um the most driven The most uh, discipline. I always call her the disciplined perfectionist. Everything that she did was to perfection. Every every expectation was perfection. I mean, she could see. I call her like the Holy Spirit of the college basketball world because she sees you in your potential and calls you to that. Like calls you to that excellence. And um, there's nobody I've ever been a part of that would has ever gone to the extreme that she has to make sure that. She's done everything in her power to not fail you. And it seems like it's personal. It seems like she's on a personal attack on you because it's by any means possible that she'd get that out. But she genuinely cared and she genuinely wanted you to be the best version of yourself. And she wasn't going to stop until that happened. And that's where the hate love relationship was because it was her way or the highway. And Um, that's very hard, especially as an egotistical, prideful teenager, but, um, somebody that loves you that much to refuse to leave you any less than your best. And then is your second mom in the same process. I mean, she's just as caring and she was just as loving as she was hard on you, which is a difficult dynamic to really comprehend. Um, and I didn't truly see that side of her as much until after I left. Um, and you know, our stories really intertwined at that point. Um, but as far as like coach on the floor um, while I was playing with her, it was it was the hardest thing up to that point clearly I've ever been a part of because it was just nothing less. And you could you could be successful in a drill, you could be successful and win. Like we never cared about winning because we won so often that you had to learn from the small things throughout the course of those games. So like she would find tons of losses throughout the course of the game and would just harp on you about them and would just get in your face about them. So she was never happy with just winning. It had to be perfect. I like think it was rare that she was ever, um, just okay with the win. Like there was always something else that needed to be said. And that gets tiring. I don't know how you can maintain that, but she did, and that was her. And just someone so special that I am, you know, thankful beyond measure day after day that I had the opportunity to to, to learn from her. Absolutely. And she was,
0: um, she was probably so hard on you on practice, and practices were so tough that when you got to big games, they were probably nothing to you guys.
1: Oh, well, games were so much fun because it was so easy. Yes, it's very true. I mean, even like with our practice guys, we practice against guys all the time. They had tryouts for the practice guys squad because um, she she's like, you need to beat them up and you need to make sure that this is twice as hard as the game because you're right. Like when games come around, that's when it's fun and that's when you get to put into practice like everything that you've been working so hard for. So, um, yeah, that's that's no exaggeration.
0: Overall, you had an extremely successful career at Tennessee. Like we mentioned, you got to three Final Fours. uh, You had a few conference championships, a few regular season titles. You scored over 1,000 points. You broke several records, including single season and career three-throw percentage. And you did at one point hold uh, the record for most three-pointers made at 266 until Angie Bjorklund broke it a few years later with 300. What's with all these younger kids breaking your
1: records? Well, you know, records I guess are just made to be broken. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <I> guess so.
0: <laughs> so then after your career at Tennessee, you played five years in the WNBA. What was the draft process like?
1: Um, that was it was interesting. I, I didn't know what to expect. I and mean, all you see is really the NBA on TV. So even as a as a girl, like you don't really know what to expect. But it's it's true. Like you said at the tables you have the ball in the center you wait for your name to get called your parents are there um it was in Boston at the time which is where the final four I think was um it was that year yes yeah so it was I mean it was kind of just a dream like I literally was floating the entire time because it's you know like of all the work that you put in as a kid and get into this point like it's actually happening you know and it was uh it was really special um, they had this draft camp beforehand at that time. They no longer had this, but you you literally have like three days where you you work out with with and four other coaches professional coaches. they can see maybe a different element of your game that they didn't before um but I remember i'm I'm just a people person, so I'm a joker, and there's this one coach in particular. Um, who I was just razz and she was an Australian woman. She had an accent. It was super fun, super funny, and we would kind of joke back and forth. I thought she was there as a volunteer helping as a trainer. Mm-hmm. And so that the course of this draft experience, I'm just like, you know, flicking her ear, cutting jokes with her, or saying little remarks here and there, having a blast, mm-hmm. come to find out Sandy Brondello, who was now the head coach at the F- in Phoenix, but she was our assistant coach in San Antonio. She introduced herself with the San Antonio head coaching staff, and was just like, hey, we're the coaching staff for San Antonio, and we're really interested in you, blah, blah, blah. And my eyes got as big as sand dollars, and I'm like, you are a coach? I was like, I am so sorry. <laughs> I just <laughs> apologize for everything. But she just laughed it off. And she's actually, that's one of the reasons why they really liked me because they saw who I was away from, like, as a person. And they got to see that side of me and how I would gel with the team. And so it actually went to my benefit. But, uh, man, I was so nervous because I was just cutting up with this person I thought was just a, a volunteer, but here she was a coach for the Silver Stars.
0: <laughs> she was the assistant. Who was the head coach? Was, um, I forget his name. Yeah,
1: Dan, Dan Hughes was the coach, um, who now is a head coach at Seattle, and they just won last oh, okay. year. Okay, yeah, I thought he was still in the league.
0: See, so yeah, in San Antonio, you guys had a pretty good team. You got to the Western Conference Finals in two thousand seven. Cappy Pondexter traveled, but did. Can, can, can you talk about what the difference between college to professional? And I know you said that jump was not as hard as high school to college.
1: Yeah, for me, the, the the greatest transition was learning how to be a pro off the court. So on the court, really the biggest transition, um, and I went into a team that was perfect fit for me. It was very team-oriented, uh, great chemistry, um, lots of plays being ran, good in transition, great personable coaching staff. Like It was a perfect fit for me. So the greatest transition for me was more how to prepare off the court. So it was more of... Um, how to take care of yourself, how to take care of your body, how to prepare, how to um, maintain being fresh when you've already played a long college season and you're getting into another season back-to-back and still be able to have enough juice left in your legs to make them work. Um, uh, simple things like you're flying three times a week, red-eye flights to play the next day. Like, how do you keep you, you know the lactic acid out of your body? Like there's little things that, They don't teach you because all that they're interested in in the pros is what you give them on the court. They don't care about life off the court. They don't care what you do. All they care is are you prepared and are you going to be professional on the floor? So um, that was a huge change when I had like a really long leash that was given to me versus this short, tiny little tightrope with Coach Summit who was, you know, everywhere at all times (laughs) in charge and had eyes in every single Crack and crevice in the city of knoxville so it's like brother yeah so it's it's just a completely different dynamic and that was um i loved it i I loved the freedom I, i felt free to to play i felt free to be my own i felt free to grow in different capacities that i didn't feel like i was able to in college
0: so you played uh you played for in san antonio for three years right and then you were traded to tulsa
1: I was there for four, and then four, Tulsa for okay. two. Yeah, but a lot of those were injury-ridden towards the end.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, you were hampered by a shoulder injuries and several knee injuries, right? Or at least several surgeries. Yeah, I, I had a shoulder
1: surgery and then three knee surgeries consecutively. Uh, sounds awful. And you yeah. played a bit overseas, right? I did. I, I played a couple years in Turkey and in Slovakia. Um, I and I didn't enjoy that as much, but there was... Primarily used, um, to get my rhythm back from all the surgeries. Okay.
0: Yeah. That's, that's tough for pro basketball, for pro women's basketball players, a lot of the money's overseas, mm-hmm. but you're so far away from everyone.
1: Yeah. I, I didn't really like, um, the all, it's just like consumes you because and some people love it. You know, it was just not my experience. It was not something that I truly enjoyed. Um, but you know a few people that you can talk to because of the language barrier um, they're so dependent upon the internet and i'm love I'm one that loves culture, I love um getting out, but the the places that I were, the place that I was in I wasn't able to explore a lot. I didn't have a lot of time to get out and really see and do things because you know you have to perform and so it was just a difficult dynamic that i didn't I did not enjoy as much. yeah, it's
0: not for everyone, no. So you retired in 2012 and you were talking about this earlier about once you retired, it was hard to go to that next step, right? Were you at peace with the decision?
1: Yeah, I was a hundred percent at peace with the decision. Um, it was hard, but I, I was, I knew that it was time because I was praying specifically. Like I had this huge passion for ministry. I had this huge heart for, for, um, just I went through a very rough, uh, difficult situation in my pr- first marriage through divorce, and that um, essentially catapulted me into a place of forgiveness, and a place of I wanted to share um, in my heart what I had learned and who I am believing God to be for me, um, a relationship with Jesus for me. And that completely reprioritized and gave me a, a, such a larger passion than I ever had playing basketball. And that was my prayer I prayed' because something that has consumed me in my entire life in basketball that was something that it was my identity and that was something that I had put my entire life and my being into and now all of a sudden like I have to think about transitioning out like what does that look like and so I was I was praying I just said like god like you've given me a passion for basketball and this is about to be done like when I know that it's time would you give me a passion far greater for something than I ever had for basketball and that was the ministry and that was that was just kind of the next natural progression for me personally, in my own life. What that looked like, and so I, um I knew once I tasted it, and once I stepped my foot into a sports ministry here in um, Seattle, where I'm currently living, that's just kind of something that it was my new passion. It was my new um, goal. It, it was. It was something that I wanted to shoot for. And it was what was difficult. Like it was, it's not easy to do that in a place like Seattle. And so it was my new challenge that was set before me. And that's what I wanted. And that's what I pursued after. Um, And that doesn't mean it was easy. I mean, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But when I knew that my desire to rehab was was gone, when my desire, my competitive drive was gone, um, you can't play at the professional level and not have that. Um, you, you have to be, and especially somebody, the player like I was, I had to be fiercely competitive with a massive heart when I played. And if I didn't have that, like I didn't have the core of who I was. So I knew that it was time and um, I did it. I cut the cord and started on my next journey. Can you talk a little bit more about sports ministry? Yeah, I, I joined staff at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and essentially what I did, I was on uh, college campuses here in Seattle at the University of Washington, Seattle Pacific Universities, and essentially walked this student-athlete that I had experienced the exact same thing. So doing a lot of mentorship, um, helping be a voice um, for them, but more importantly, ears to listen to them, walking through hard times with them. Um And most importantly, just sharing the love of Jesus with them because it's, you can strive and strive and strive and strive for a game that, that will always be there, but it's not going like, I always hold up a basketball and I say, as much as you love this ball and as much as you love this game and as much as blood, sweat, and tears that you put into it, it has zero emotions. It's not going to give you back anything. And so when you're striving after something, that's a lost cause that X amount of years from now, nobody's going to remember that you even played. And when that's what you give everything towards, like, that's going to be so fleeting, and that's going to be devastating, and it's not going to fill you. Um, But there's someone that's greater that will fill you, and that's the relationship I have with Jesus, and that's for anybody. And so that's kind of what I wanted to just walk alongside of people when they're distraught and help when they're hurting and be a voice. Um, to speak truth into them when society is telling them one thing, but but it's a lie, and to speak truth into them, and that's that's really my heart for people, and that's what I joined into um, right after sport. That seems like such a great career, and like you said, so fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it was, it definitely was, and um, was thankful to have that that next step and that transition for myself too.
0: You, I'm sure you're a great person to talk to. For the for the students, because you've been through it,
1: yeah, it's so, awesome. Thank you. It's it's definitely one thing to to speak it and to say it, but it's a whole other thing when you experience it. It's like you you can just like look at it and say, "I get it. Like it's it's okay. Like it, this is going to be hard, and give yourself grace because it's it is hard, but that's okay, right?" So um, definitely understand where they're coming from. Yeah,
0: that's great that you found your passion after basketball. Yeah. Around the time that your career ended, um, I I might be off by a year, but that was also around the same time that Pat Summit announced her diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. She ultimately passed away from it in 2016. Uh, But there was a time after the diagnosis that you actually lived with her for, I don't know if it was a few weeks or a few months, but can you talk about that dynamic? Because you weren't her uh, player anymore you were, no. you guys were equals.
1: Yeah. Well, I would never say equals. Um, <laughs> she's definitely always coached to me and my, my mentor, my leader. And I was very, very blessed. Uh, she graciously opened her home to me while I was going through divorce, while I was um, going through my last knee surgery. And I learned more from her in that three months that I lived with her than I did probably the four years, um, that I played for her. And it was just such a, an intimate time in our, in our lives, literally crossed. So many paths in so many different ways because, um, I mean, I was in a very vulnerable place personally walking through this divorce and she, her, what happened to her in her marriage, my senior year, the same thing that happened to me, um, you know, four or five years out when I was living with her. And so she got it. She understood and She's the only one in my life that could speak directly to me. And understand what I was going through, um, but not only that. It's like she went to my divorce lawyer with me, and she mentored me. Literally every single morning we would talk. Um, but th- I think the most, the most um, important takeaway that I got from my time living with Coach Summit, um, well, two things. One was the way that she lived by integrity, just this the highest morals, the highest integrity. Uh, that was in public and that was behind closed doors and we had very intimate conversations and she, she was very intimate and sharing things with me that, um, really changed my perspective, especially going, um, being in, in such a deep, difficult, dark place that I was in and wanted to just rip people apart. Um, she brought peace and she brought calmness and she brought, uh, perspective that I needed at the time the second piece um from her was I had an opportunity to ask for her forgiveness I didn't know I needed to Uh, I didn't realize how hard it was on her and how I hurt her my senior year um, in college there's a lot of things that go into that story but uh, long story short is essentially it became apparent to me Like I felt God told me literally woke me up out of my sleep like literally sat forward up in my bed I felt like I heard a small—when I say that, it's like this, this small still voice. is kind of like a, a memory, so to speak. Um, but it just woke me out of the blue, and it said, you need to ask forgiveness. And I knew exactly what he meant. Um, so I got—I was at home at the time. I got back on the plane. I left and went back to Knoxville. I knocked on her door right, right off the plane right when I got there. Her family was over at her house, and I just—I asked her if I could talk with her. So she brought me in the room. It was just us two in her bedroom, and I asked for her forgiveness. And she started to break down and cry. And I had no idea the magnitude of not only of how I hurt her, but the depth of love and care that she really had for me. And to know that I could have harmed and hurt her in such a way, I just had no idea. You know, I was a kid, and I was um, I was hurt that my hurt came from not winning a freaking basketball game. hurt came, her hurt came from her life has falling apart. And someone that she trusted in me as a student athlete, someone that we had a very close relationship with. uh, And we met every single day in her office. Every single day I was in there and we would talk. And um, just to have that opportunity before she got, uh, she started to really downward spiral with Alzheimer's. And to see like reconciliation and to experience that with her I will forever be grateful for that time. And that all happened while I was living there with her. So it's a very, very deep um, heart of gratitude and thankfulness that I had that time with her.
0: Wow, that is such a touching story. And it's great that you got to know her as your coach, but you also got to know her as your friend. Oh, yeah. And
1: there was, yeah. She you was, probably have no regrets. No, I don't. I, none at all. I mean, she's um, definitely still a love-hate relationship. Don't get it wrong. Like, there's <laughs> things that I probably would have changed or done differently than, than she did. Um, but she's not perfect either, you know, but definitely a love hate relationship at that time. But, uh, man, so what a, um, a gift to have, have her as my, like I said, my leader, my mentor, my friend, um, definitely a, a blessing to have that.
0: That's great. And at the end of the day, you get to say that you played for one of the best women, not even women's, one of the best basketball coaches ever mm-hmm. we're all
1: and that's that's opened so many doors for me um not not from a selfish perspective, but it just gives you instant credibility when you drop Pat Summit's name, not professional, like say that you played the w n b a has not even a close um, it doesn't even compare <laughs> the, the doors that will be opened if if you say that you played for Coach Summit like just the the instant respect that that you get from people it's like, oh, like you endured that, okay. <laughs>
0: So everyone knows who she is thankful. Yeah. So you're involved in two podcasts of your own. Can you go into some detail on that? I
1: am. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The first, since we're talking about coaches, it's called the sum of it all. This S U M M. And I'm doing that with my friend and teammate, Sydney Spencer, and it kind of just organically came about where, both of us are just kind of sharing stories because everybody that finds out that you played for her, their first questions are always like, what's it like to play for Pat? I mean, everybody's Um, even people have zero basketball IQ or sport awareness. So it's, we started to think like, how could we get uh, a forum, a place where people would just be able to hear different types of stories Because you hear the same things over and over again on on the media. Like you hear the same things over again on social media, the same quotes from the same people that are in the limelight. But what people don't know is like she has influenced millions of people and millions of people's stories that have never been told and stories about coach, intimate stories behind closed doors and other closed doors and more closed doors that have never been out. And it's our duty as 161 Lady Vol athletes that played for her and so many other people to continue her legacy and have that move on. And so we just kind of dreamt this dream. I got a hold of Tyler, her son, and cast the vision of it. Um, and he got us in contact with some other people just to make sure that um, we're on the same page and that we're doing this right and in the, in the right way. And we just kind of started it because we wanted people to hear different sides of her um, to learn from her legacy and her leadership definite dozen principles that she's lived by, that she taught us um, and just give a platform and a voice to people's stories that have been influenced by, as we say, arguably the greatest leader, one of the greatest leaders of all time, and especially in her generation. So uh, that's, that's what that podcast is about. It's called the sum of it all. Um, again, like both of these are on iTunes, Google play, Spotify, um, and then the second one that I'm doing has to do a little bit more of a, of the deep sense of all the feelings. Um, it's called little Did I know. And that one is with another friend that I walked through a divorce with. And, um, it's essentially a journey through life, like the good and the bad things. And then what we wish we would have known before having to gone through the very difficult parts, the very difficult seasons of life. So it's, it's a deep podcast. It, it's, um, our heart behind it is really to cultivate conversation amongst friends, like a trusted space to help heal, to help, um, restore and to help kind of open people's eyes that you're not alone in the hardships of life. And so, um, and in this really sweet way that only we can, we have a lot of fun and we laugh, we crack up a lot in it. Um, which is kind of a, an interesting dynamic when you go so deep on topics and conversations. So, Uh, Both of those, again, are are mine. Little did I know some of it all. Please check them out. Uh, We have a lot of fun on them, and uh, hopefully you'll learn something in the process, too.
0: I have to say, I've listened to every episode of the Sum of It All, and if you like basketball, it's a must-listen. I don't care if you're a Tennessee fan or if you're not. If you're a UConn fan, Baylor, you need to listen because... Pat Summit, like I said before, one of the greatest coaches there ever will be. And you guys don't only get former players. You, one episode, you had the athletic director. One mm-hmm. episode, you had a student manager. One episode, you had the voice of the radio for the Lady Vols. And I, I can't recommend it enough.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, I mean, we definitely want it to be a leadership podcast because it, it's not just like, hey, let's reminisce and have story time. Like, we definitely want to get to a point and hear people's stories, their successes, their failures, you know, how her definite dozen leadership principle has impacted your life. And so um, I appreciate that. But we agree. Like, we agree. We we definitely want to continue her legacy and and keep moving forward with, with this podcast as well.
0: Absolutely. And I look forward to the next episode. So, Sean, I'm going to let you go, but I do have one more fun question before you go. Absolutely. So, being from the Midwest, being from Indiana, <laughs> you were a huge Chicago Cubs fan. Oh, yeah. And I call myself, I proudly call myself a bandwagon Cubs fan because I have some family out in Chicago, and in 2016, when they were in the playoffs, I, I jumped on board, and that playoff run to the World Series was awesome. <laughs> so, tell me, how was it watching them win the World Series I... in 2016? <laughs>
1: I reverted back to like an inner seven-year-old little girl, and it's late. It's I had four roommates at the time, and everybody's quiet, but they understand my hype and my excitement. And I just screeched like a little girl and ran around the house and did laps around our dinner table. Like I was so <laughs> excited, I I I could not believe what was happening because any true Cub fan you you're kind of like the bears. Like you're saying is like, Oh, there's always next year. Oh, there's always next year because like, you know, it's just, you have to curse the goat, you know, like it's, it's not going to happen. And then it does after 108 years. And you're like, I'm alive to actually experience this. This is the best thing ever. So I was beyond ecstatic when my cubbies blew the W for the final game. Oh my goodness. It was Amazing.
0: Amazing. All right, Shauna, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. And where can people find you? Yes. Twitter, Instagram? Thank you. Yeah, you can find uh, me personally at Shauna Zolman-Mahaley on Facebook and on Instagram. And then, again, like those two podcasts, I have both Facebook and Instagram for Little Did I Know and also The Sum of It All, and that's with two Ms, S-U-M-M, on Facebook and Instagram.
0: All right, that's it for the show today. Thanks for listening, everyone.